Welcome back to Grand Rounds Nation on ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Presenting the best Grand Rounds from across the country, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholz. In this episode, we're continuing a recent session on alternative treatment options for depression from the American College of Osteopathic Family Physicians, or ACOFP. Speaking is Dr. Richard Cottrell. Transcranial magnetic stimulation. This is the, the next topic. You all are going to love me when you go back to the office on Monday. Uh, how many people have had a patient ask about transcranial magnetic stimulation or TMS? Five, six, nine, one. Oh, good, good. Uh, this was introduced to the American public yesterday by Dr. Oz. You are going to have questions on this. <laughs> Dr. Oz has a multi-million dollar, follow, a multi-million dollar people, people following. Uh, he is the most watched talk show in the country. He introduced transcranial magnetic stimulation to the American public, and it was very positive. And in his audience, he asked who had heard of it, and nobody had. This is FDA cleared for treatment-resistant depression. To be eligible to, to get this treatment, a person must fail at least one antidepressant trial. The focus of TMS, or transcranial magnetic stimulation, is a 1.5 Tesla magnetic pulse to the left prefrontal cortex. The, the impression or the, the desire is to increase the activity of the left prefrontal cortex, which is equa equated to less depression. In a way, from my mind, the way I think about this is, is way back in the old days, if a person had a stroke and their left arm became um, less usable, they used to, to bind that and, and, and say to the person, well, you're going to have to get away, go around without your left arm. More currently, we actually suggest that they use that more so that the neural tracts responsible with that stroke are forced to have increased blood flow and the recovery from that is, is improved. In a sense, that's what you're doing with this for, for depression. You're taking the, the area of the brain that's responsible for mood, for depression, you're increasing the blood flow, you're increasing the, um, the, the neuronic activity, and with that you have significant improvements in, in the mood. There is now a significant cost. It is in evolution as we speak. It's only been available to us common folks, common doctors, for about three years now. And insurances really don't know what to do with it. Uh, knowing insurances focuses and focus in the world, it is less costly than some of the other therapies. It's less cost, costly to them than atypical antipsychotics. It's less costly to them than electroconvulsive therapy. So they will be rapid to adopt it once they see that, because of course their main goal in life is paying less money. That's their, that, so it will be rapidly, uh, but so far there's only some insurances in the Northeast that pre-certify it, so instead of a copay, most patients are, are faced with a, an out-of-pocket expense that most insurances will reimburse them uh, after they apply and are re, um, denied and then apply again, and usually they get at least a decent amount reimbursed, but it is an effort on the patient part, and they have to apply and be denied and apply and be denied. Um, so this cost is significant to them. It's not just a copay. The efficacy, though, for this, like versus the atypicals, versus the uh, second monotherapy from the STAR-D trials, the efficacy is, is upwards uh, of 60%. Roughly two-thirds of the people who get this get significantly better. A, third, a half of them, a third of the total patient population who get this, have a complete remission that they've never gotten before, and that is something that they will be forever grateful for. And, you and they have to have failed at least one antidepressant trial to even get TMS, so you're talking about a treatment-resistant group of people to begin with. It is non-invasive, non-systemic, uh, for pregnancy, as, as we know, paroxetine slipped into a more worrisome category. There are uh, concerns with other medications in pregnancy. There isn't anything safer than this for a, pre a woman who's pregnant. 
in terms of her depression and the safety of the fetus. There are some law enforcement uh, divisions and, and uh, FAA for pilots who are starting to prefer this because they take a dim view of having uh, substances in their in pilots and police officers. Anybody who carries a firearm sometimes there's can be concerns with medications. There's no anesthesia or sedation needed. It's kind of comparing it to ECT if you have a lot of experience with ECT. This does not require anesthesia or sedation. You don't have to schedule the uh, recovery room. It's an outpatient procedure. It takes approximately 37 minutes for each day and it's five days a week for up to six weeks. So you're talking about 30 treatment sessions seems to be the number that makes a real difference for people. So now on Monday when your patients ask you, you can be the expert and say, I, I know all about TMS. I'm very familiar with that. It's considered a treatment platform, which is interesting. It has been available longer in Germany and some of the European countries, um, Australia and Canada. And they are, if you, if you Google TMS Canada, they're using it for a whole variety of things. In this country, it's cleared for or depression, depression only. I was actually surprised, uh, the, there's a webpage from the multiple sclerosis that is saying that it's got a lot of benefit, potential benefit there. I'm not sure exactly the location of the placement of the coil. It's been used uh, for a variety of other things, and it was originally used for brain mapping instead of having to use people who've had neurological injuries to find out what areas are injured and what, therefore, now they can no longer move their foot or whatever, and, and then correlate those. This can be used as a non-damaging um, way, and this was originally was a research tool for brain mapping to see what the different areas of the brain did. And then they, somebody came up with the idea that it could be potentially helpful for depression, and, uh, and then they did the research trials. May, the Mayo Clinic was uh, pivotal in that. They'd been studying it for 10 years before it had been re finally released to the rest of us and found that was significantly beneficial for depression. There was a great PBS show uh, not too long ago. I completely didn't expect it. I was just watching PBS with my kids. And in there, they mentioned a couple of hospitals using it. Post-op for pain reduction, they have uh, one application post-op, randomly given, and they have a placebo machine that does the same noise and is, uh, to the operator is indistinguishable from the uh, actual machine. So you have a sham treatment. And those who received it after, uh, after an operation used the morphine pumps significantly less than those who did not get it. I don't know if this is going to catch on in hospitals where they are going to push it for most people, but uh, the side effects, there can be a headache and scalp discomfort. It's uh, a 1.5 Tesla uh, magnetic pulse that is applied, so there's no actual physical contact, but it can leave a little bit of a, of a rash or, or redness. There have been seizures now, or there has been one seizure now. I think they were up to 50,000 treatments or something before that a person had a seizure. As soon as the machine was placed on pause from the active pulsing, the seizure ended. There aren't any other systemic side effects such that we might have to compare it to with antidepressants or atypical antipsychotics, which can have uh, strings attached, so to speak, with those medications. And there's no adverse effect on cognition at all. It might even actually be the opposite. They're looking into seeing if this can be potentially helpful for Alzheimer's. It seems to actually benefit cognition. Electroconvulsive therapy is an, also an alternative. It is one of the oldest contemporary antidepressant treatments. It was first public use, published use back in 1938. It is effective. It is typically used in today's setting for somebody who is acutely manic to the point where they just won't slow down. They're already in the hospital. They're already getting lithium. They're already getting Depakote. They're already getting Haldol and Abilify, and they just have, won't slow down, and they just keep going and going and going. 
and for them, electroconvulsive therapy can be incredibly effective. I think electroconvulsive therapy is probably underused in this country. It has a little bit of an industrial strength view to it, and it, it is what it is. It's not a small thing, but it is it has been probably demonized to some degree. It is effective as a, an acute antidepressant for folks who are bone-chillingly depressed. They haven't gotten off the couch in days. This can be something that can change the, the, the future of their recovery. It, is a little more intensive. It does reco uh, require recovery room setting. You have to have anesthesiology on board. Uh, somebody, uh, they have to be bagged for a small amount of time after you uh, relax their muscles so they don't have, an, uh, so they have a, a seizure, but they don't have a muscular seizure. And there can be memory con uh, difficulties uh, fairly frequently. The most recent three months or six months can get cloudy, sometimes even further back than that. You have the bite block, you have the uh, anode and cathode, and you apply a direct, direct electrical current across the brain. Vagus nerve stimulation is another alternative treatment. It, it was originally used in medication-resistant partial seizures. It is, uh, was eventually approved in severely resistant major depression. For vagus nerve stimulation, a person has to have failed four antidepressant trials before they're a candidate. It is a little bit invasive. It does require surgery. There is some surgical risk. Some people's voices are um, altered, some permanently. And if they remove, even if they remove this uh, later, they often use, they leave the hook and the part that's uh, wrapped around the, the nerve, and it can have a counterindication for MRIs later on. You have a pacer, so to speak, a little electric stimulator, the wiring, uh, all subcutaneous, and then it's wrapped around the vagus nerve and it and provides pulses. And that has been helpful in depression. Deep brain stimulation. Is, is not available to the typical on-the-street psychiatrist. It is more research-oriented now. It is incredibly beneficial. It is a little industrial strength. You have to have surgery to implant the stimulators. It was first used uh, in Parkinson's for the tremors and some of the other difficulties with Parkinson's. Found to be a, a, a very, very beneficial. Different location for the depression. So they're kind of just deep structures. Instead of the left prefrontal cortex, they're looking for deeper structures for the stimulation. So in summary, we went over the DSM-4 criteria for major depression. We saw how important it is to all of our practices. We looked at some of the frontline or first layer uh, treatments, antidepressants, therapies, and exercise, some of the options, and then some of the novel approaches. Bright light therapy, transcranial magnetic stimulation. These are the ones you probably had heard less about than the others. I thank you for your time. Do you have questions? Yes, sir. What are your thoughts about the role of uh, Deplin or Folosin in use uh, for treatment-resistant depression? The, the role of what? Deplin. That's available, I think, at General Nutrition Center. I've had a couple patients who've, who've tried it. About half of them ultimately say it didn't really seem to do much, and the other half seemed to be quite positive. It, I can't see any downside to it, where years ago people wanted to do ephedrine to get that going feeling, and there was a downside to ephedrine, and I'd... I'd tell people to be shy of that. For, but for Deplin, it seems to be decent. It seems to be a good, a good alternative. Other questions? What basic blood work would you recommend for a patient who presents with depression? What, lab? Yes, would you recommend that? Oh, huh. What workup? Yeah, it, in general, I, I know I had one attending physician said that psychiatrists were, were some of the last of the original physicians because we don't rely on uh, electrical tests, we don't rely on labs. I guess you could, you'd want, you'd want to make sure they're in with a good family doctor. You'd want to make sure that they're, they're not hypothyroid, they're not anemic. B12, uh, I do leave that all up to the family doctors for the patients I work with. 
Uh, we used to do a fairly decent panel of labs, uh, managed care, God bless them. I mean that a little sarcastically. We used to look for Wilson's disease. We used to look for neurosyphilis. We used to look for a variety of things uh, that could have been pieces of the puzzle. They basically said, unless we know that somebody has that, it, we shouldn't test for it. And I always ask them, well, if we know they have it, why are we? We could only know that they have it if we've tested for it. So it seems circular, and I kind of gave up on any testing. Uh, psychological testing can sometimes be helpful. In psychiatry, especially if a person, if you're thinking about like attention deficit, that's a different topic, but there's the Connors test, which is really helpful. But for, as far as neuropsychological testing, usually the diagnosis is pretty clear. You all have done, had hundreds and hundreds of patients who are depressed. It's good to know the DSM-IV criteria, but you, usually you don't need a lab test to back it up. Yeah, in, in Florida, I've heard some people talk about the mold exposure, and there's apparently some labs you can get concerning how what this, the, the, the intensity of a person's mold exposure. Of course, in Florida, everybody's exposed to mold, so I'm not sure if that's going to allow us to differentiate between who's severely depressed with that or not, but good question. Thank you. Yes, there's another question back there. Is there any uh, role for light therapy in a dysthymic patient? I think so. The cool thing about light therapy is it is reasonably inexpensive. If you take a light box, it's going to last for 10 years, and it costs you less than $100 to begin with. You know, the treatment cost, the cost per treatment is pretty small. Uh, I've had more light boxes than I have now, and I've given them away over the years, and people were not significantly uh, depressed to the point that they, they reached criteria for it, and they all routinely said they felt better about it. There were even some high-end hotels for a while that were offering it more for jet lag, which is kind of like an out-of-sync depression of a very short duration. But people just feel out of, you know, out of touch. They, they're weak. They're fatigued, easily fatigued. I think light therapy should be used 100 times more than it is. I expect to see some valid light boxes at 10,000 lux to be available at Home Depot soon. I haven't seen that yet. Sometimes they'll say vigorous light or uh, neolite, but they're never 10,000 lux. Not that I've seen so far. And that's the key for any of that is 10,000 lux. How widely available is the TMS therapy going to be in psychiatrists and private practice? The TMS therapy, it's, it's kind of an enigma. It's, it's fascinating because if you go to the webpage, there are areas of the country that have dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of machines. There are a couple states out in the Midwest, I saw like Wyoming and, and uh, North Dakota, that don't even have any machines at all in the entire state. California's, they got a bazillion of them there. What's the average, what's the average startup cost uh, for one the, of those machines? The cost, the out-of-pocket cost, it's amazing and it's an important question. To compare it, the out-of-pocket cost for a year's worth of Abilify as an add-on to an antidepressant is about $9,000. Uh, that's about $800 a month times 12. You know, there you go. The cost for TMS is about the same. It's about $9,000 out-of-pocket. And then th about three-quarters of people will, on appeal, get about 75% of that back from their insurance company. But the, it has to be a patient who's willing to do all that letter writing. And I used to not be wanting to do that. I, I'm still not all that much of a big fan of managed care. I think they should cover it. I don't think I should have to write a dozen letters to, to prescribe Prozac, but that seems to be the era we're in. And with that letter writing, it sounds like pro it's the typical cost, if you say if he's made $8,000, the typical patient would get 6000 of that back. But that's still, uh, that's still a financial hill for them to get over. It is cost prohibitive for some people. And, and they have to be willing to go through that effort. Good question. Well, thank you very much. You've been listening to Dr. Richard Cottrell from the American College of Osteopathic Family Physicians, or ACOFP, on this week's episode of Grand Rounds Nation. 
Be sure to join us again for the next session of the nation's best Grand Rounds. Until then, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and thanks for listening.